Well, good morning again. So, name it and claim it. Name it and claim it. I didn't think I'd stand up here and preach that before, but we're going to name it and claim it. That is not often used in terms of those words anymore because it's a buzzword that has been too criticized, but that is indeed the promise that prosperity preachers continue to make to their congregations. The promise is that you need to declare your God-given right to receive things, that God wants only to satisfy your every want, your every greedy and sensual desire that you have had for your whole life. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's health, sometimes it's comfort, sometimes it's success, sometimes it's reputation, a better job, the list goes on and on. But the general principle behind this false teaching is that God owes you. God owes you for your tiny little acts of obedience. Maybe you're showing up to church. Maybe you pray the right way. But He owes you the favor. And He has to do what you then declare through your words, through your prayers. A few examples. Joyce Meyer tells her congregation in a famous YouTube clip that you can all go watch to speak to their checkbook. Hold it up and declare to it, you shall not be empty in the name of Jesus. And Jesus will make sure that that checkbook will stay full for all of your life, except for the amount that you send to her ministry, of course. Joel Osteen, as we all know, proclaims that we need to stand and proclaim that we are younger, that we are smarter, that we are stronger, that we are wiser, that we're more beautiful, and God will make it so through the power of affirmation, a new age concept. Creflo Dollar, probably the best-named prosperity preacher out there, Creflo Dollar, He wrote this, the Bible says, and I should pause here to note, Creflo Dollar has a private jet and he preaches to one of the most impoverished areas. He built his church in in an area of Atlanta that is quite impoverished. He wrote this, the Bible says that wealth is stored up for the righteous. Well, that's good news. This is going to feel good today. This is a feel-good sermon. However, it will remain stored up until you claim it. So it's on you, you need to claim it, therefore claim it now, he says. You possess the ability to seize and command wealth and riches to come to you. That doesn't sound like the gospel to me, but it sounds pretty neat to some people. And our last one we can go to many people's favorite, and certainly among a younger crowd, favorite false teacher of the day, Stephen Furtick. Stephen Furtick dresses the right way, he's got a gajillion catchy quotes, that's kind of his thing. He's been all over the news, the the religious news, the past couple of weeks for jumping headlong into full-blown heresy. Um, But we'll stick with our point, which is this prosperity. He says this, stop waiting for what you want. If you do your part, God will begin to do what only he can do. He'll make your stuff bigger. That's awesome. So do your part. God owes you. He must act in the way that you want him to do. We could actually go on and on all morning with examples from these and many other teachers, and they attract massive followings. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, it is because we have what is warned against in in the letters to Timothy, the tickling ear syndrome, right? We want to be told things that are promising to us, the very things we want in our sin. Like a lottery ticket, they hold out this promise that you can get exactly what you want if you just know the secret 
to accessing God and demanding it from Him. And many people follow them because sometimes they say things that sound pretty good and sometimes even true and biblical. And that's actually true with all lies is they need some amount of truth in order to be believable. And they, knew, they do use the name of Jesus. They even use some Bible verses, you might say. And doesn't the Bible actually promise us this? We're in 1 John, and we'll be in 1 John chapter 3 this morning. Doesn't verse 22 say, whatever we ask, we will receive from Him? Uh, doesn't Jesus Himself say in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you? Perhaps we're not doing this right. Perhaps we're not believing in what we need before we ask for it. That's what they'll tell you. But God provides a different answer, doesn't He? In James 4.3, He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Not to glorify Him. Okay, well, it's a faith issue. That's the most common response. It's a faith issue. You need to faith your way to getting these things, to accessing these promises in God's Word. It's a faith issue. Take a giant step back. Let's look at the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. What about these Old Testament prophets who gave up everything, who spoke God's word in the most difficult of circumstances? What does it tell us about them? Verses 35 through 38. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These prophets got it all wrong. Why would they suffer for the glory of God? They forgot to name it and claim it. Oh, that's the Old Testament. Sorry. Maybe somebody says, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? It's got to get better there. Now we can name it and claim it. Let's look at Paul. Nobody can question Paul's faith. Nobody can question Paul's knowledge of Scripture. And what does he say in 2 Corinthians 12.8? Here Paul is dealing with an affliction, which he refers to as a thorn in his side, something he can't get rid of. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But it didn't. It didn't leave him. It wasn't God's will to heal him. He needed to suffer with this affliction. God said no. He didn't have the ability to demand something from God. In fact, what God said is, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is a common theme throughout Scripture. God never leaves it to guess as to whether it is human strength or smarts or ability to speak. It is always His work, His action that saves His people. In Philippians 4, 11-12, Paul writes this, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Well, again, Paul is getting this all wrong. Why would he need to be content in hunger and need? Didn't he know about these promises Jesus made, supposedly? Didn't he know that you could access Scripture, that you could demand from God instant gratification to all your wants and desires? See, the false teachers of our time, they don't convict us of our sin by the Word of God. They don't drive us to repentance and faith. They do not call for humility and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's absolutely nothing about their sermons or their messages that reflect the apostolic preaching in the Bible. If you go back and look at the book of Acts, what is their goal? Their goal is to build your self-esteem, 
tell you you're good right where you're at. Tell you there's great promises for your life. And there are. But it's God's promises, not theirs. What they appeal to ultimately is to our greed, to our vanity, to our desire for comfort or safety. Health, wealth, and prosperity is what we call it. God does indeed promise to provide for every need. But we have to recognize that our greatest needs are justification, forgiveness. This is what we spoke of this morning that Luther was focused on. Scripture points to that. That's the five solas. Justification and sanctification. To be forgiven and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29. And I hope we're going to see this morning as we dive into this text that it is still a wonderful promise of God to His children. But it is in fact a promise to His children. Those disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to a text this morning that is so often misused, that is so often used to blaspheme your Son, to make promises that we see in our own experience that don't hold true. Lord, help us to understand. By the work of your Spirit, change our way of thinking and draw us ever nearer to you through your Holy Word. In this we pray. Amen. Now, we will be, as I said, in 1 John chapter 3, Again, this morning, we are going to cover verses 22 and verse 23. And if you remember when we closed last week with verse 21, I mentioned we were closing in the middle of a sentence. So we're actually going to read from verse 21. So let's read 1 John 3, 21 through 23. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Now, we are picking up these verses, obviously, within the broader context of the entire letter of 1 John, which is written to Christians, so that Christians can know that they actually believe in Jesus Christ in a saving way, that they have forgiveness of sins, that they have eternal life. Now, in the narrower context, we are picking up these verses right in line with what started out as the moral test or test of obedience in verses 4 through 10, and then shifted to the social test, the test of love, starting in verse 11. And then we saw last week that our fellowship with God can indeed be broken. It can indeed be significantly hampered when we fail to submit ourselves to the authority of His Word. Uh, particularly through either a pattern of unrepentant sin, a lifestyle of sin, or when we truly fail to love one another. When we don't love our brothers and sisters of Christ in the same sacrificial way that Jesus Christ loved us. And then we come to this verse 21, which gives us this comfort and boldness and assurance that if we come in repentance and faith, when our hearts no longer convict us, we can confidently make our petitions to God, and we can rest in His love for us. And thus we pick up with this verse this morning, the end of verse 21 and into 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. And if there was a period there and we could anchor on that, and if we saw it in our experience that we just ask whatever we want and get it filled, we might look at that a certain way. But let's take a step back, because that's not a promise that is unique to 1 John. So it becomes very important to understand what is 
meant by these promises throughout Scripture. We're not going to look at all of them, but we'll pick and choose a few that have the same general theme. For example, Jesus said in John 14, John 14, verses 13 and 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So ask in Jesus' name, right? We do know that we are to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We use this verse in our opening today, for there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. We know that. But it is interesting to see how people interpret this very verse and apply it, right? They affix the name Jesus, the word Jesus, to their prayers, much like a magician says abracadabra. You hear it in the silliest of ways, right? Like, like, oh God, let Johnny score a goal in Jesus' name, right? Or let the, I don't even want to say the name of a team because then it'll turn into, well, I don't want the Chiefs to win or I don't want... Let my team win this game in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Please let it work, right? It gets used that way. What's this saying? This will be a theme because it's coming up in John's closing verse too. When we pray in the name of Jesus, what are we doing? We are making our petition to God on the basis of our faith in the full righteousness of His person, right? That He came and was perfectly obedient in fulfilling God's law and on the ransom that he paid on the cross for our sins. When he suffered and died in our place as a propitiation, as a satisfaction of God's wrath against us for our sins, that is what we are doing. To pray in Jesus' name is to approach God in the boldness and confidence of knowing that we are his by and through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. We come and we have to recognize That in that moment, we are no longer our own. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And when we realize that, then, as John says later in his letter, in verse 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is where we typically run into our problem. What we consistently see in all of these answer-to-prayer passages is that believers must be making requests completely in accordance with the will of God, ultimately to bring glory to Him, never to us, always glory to Him. And what can be hard for us to accept is God may be most glorified if you continue to slog it out where you're at, even if you think you're unhappy in whatever vocation He has called you to, in singleness or marriage, in the job that you may not like, Being the the mother of children who frustrate you at that time? Looking at my kids. So, um, sorry, got distracted. But that's that's it, right? To glorify God. We, We must glorify God. And that can be in our suffering. And that's something we don't like to hear. But it is why our passage doesn't end with a period right there. It actually says, where it's again in... Chapter 3, 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Right? If you're a one who circles in your Bible, that word because is the critical word there. But we do still have to be careful because our natural human tendency is that that seems to give us this ulterior motive for obedience. 
well, if I do these things, then I'll get what I want, right? It's not saying that, though. It's not saying that the ball is now in our court, that we have the power to manipulate God for our personal advantage by coming up with the right list of rules and obeying those and then going to our knees and saying, God, check out my list, you know, the naughty or nice list. I think I had mostly nice, and so now give me what I want. Because we have to be honest with ourselves. We will always minimize our sin and maximize our obedience and good works when we come to God. We will not see the horrors of our sin. All you have to do is look at some of the biggest law followers in the Bible, the Pharisees. None of us even approach the religiosity of the Pharisees in following rules and look what Jesus said to them. It's not an option to obey your way into manipulating God. We know that from their example, we know that we, have, we, we worship and serve a God who is not looking for this begrudging sense of legalism, that we can do the right things. What this verse is stating instead, and you see this in the title to the sermon, is a condition precedent. The condition precedent. And that is a legal term, I'll admit, my, my roots showing through here. But that is acknowledging that certain conditions must exist must already exist prior to there being any kind of obligation or duty or right or anything like that. This is stating the condition precedent for John's statement. So what is the condition precedent? Well, the condition precedent is that you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And that means you follow Him. That means all of your affections, your entire heart, your entire life, all of your motives, all of your actions are fully devoted to loving and pleasing God. And you can see if that were true, then everything you want would be completely different than it is today. But we know that that is where God is at. Hosea 6.6 says this, I desire steadfast love. He wants steadfast love, loyal love from us, and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants us to know Him and to love Him. Now, external obedience to his commands, as it is revealed all throughout Scripture, that is absolutely necessary and it is required, but it is the motivation behind that that really matters, that really drives our obedience. Is our motivation there to please God in every way, our Heavenly Father, because we are children? If we do that, he's most interested if that is what is driving our obedience. Because that desire to please him, much like you would do with parents on earth, ultimately drives you towards doing things to honor them, to glorify them in an earthly way. The Lord never looks purely on the outside. We know this from that great verse, 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. What do we see with certain people? That guy's really religious. She always goes to church. We do that. But the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so we have to ask ourselves always, what is our motive? Do we have a heart that is devoted to pleasing God? I would say Jesus made this crystal clear on his Sermon on the Mount. Right? He was dealing with a group of people who were following a religion that had turned fully into works-based righteousness. What can we do to then be righteous, to then merit or earn our way into God's good pleasure? But the problem was they were no longer focused on following God's rules because of their love for God, because of who He is and knowing Him. 
And we remember, when we look at any command in Scripture, the Ten Commandments are always a good example, what we are seeing is commandments that are a reflection of who God is, His very nature. So it strips away our ability to say, I like this part, but not that part. Because what you're saying when I don't like that command, I don't like that part, is I don't like God. I don't love God. I love parts of God. And that is a dangerous place to be. And the religious elite had lost in that day their love for God. So what did Jesus do on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he took things that had very external signs of obedience. He took adultery, for example. Adultery being very external, very visible, and it is just the outpouring of a rebellious, sinful, lustful heart. And he said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He has taken an external thing and he has turned it into an internal thing. He didn't make that command smaller, he made it bigger. He did the same thing with murder and several others. Murder, he then flips, right? Sixth commandment. He flips in Matthew 5.22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's actually the heart that matters. He's not, he, he is interested that you don't murder somebody. That is a direct violation of the commandment. But he's actually interested in why. Why don't you do that? See, when John writes that clause, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, he is indeed capturing both the external and and an internal standard. See, keeping the commandments of God is an external standard. It is objective. It is measurable. We can tell. And in fact, it is what convicts us of our sin and drives us towards our recognition that we need a Savior because we recognize right away that we can't follow all of God's commands perfectly. But doing what pleases God, that is an internal standard. That reflects a life oriented towards loving God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And from that comes your obedience. Because if you do that, if you live in a way that everything that you think or do, everything that you say is oriented towards pleasing God, it really strips away any notion of merit. You're not doing things to tick boxes to earn something from God. You're doing them out of love, not with any expectation. Everything we do has to come from knowing God, from knowing Him as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. And therefore, it turns our obedience not into something that we do out of looking for rules to follow, but something that is a natural reflection of our growing knowledge of God and our deeper love for Him each and every day. We'll turn back to another Martin Luther quote since it's Reformation Day. Listen to the way that Martin Luther captures this. He says, When God, in His sheer mercy, and without any merit of mine, has given me such unspeakable riches. What's Martin Luther talking about there? He didn't live in riches, by the way. He lived in poverty. He's speaking of salvation. He's speaking of justification, forgiveness of sins. And what he is saying is that when God sent his son who died for me and then poured his grace upon me such that I could be saved by faith, I had no merit of my own. And he had stacked up a lot of it as a monk, but I had no merit of my own to earn salvation. That is unspeakable riches. 
He says, when he realizes this, he says, then shall I not then freely, joyously, wholeheartedly, unprompted, do everything that I know will please him? He goes on from there. See, if you have a recognition of what God has done for you, you can't help but love Him and want to please Him. And what you go through in this life doesn't matter as long as you're pleasing Him. That's the driving force. Perhaps another example helps us see this. This is the historical encounter between Jesus and who we call the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, 16-22. He says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's our human problem, right? Always, what can I do in my control so that I can get this? Jesus answered, we're in verse 17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Just tell me, I'll do them. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So what you see in this story, we're not going to pick this whole thing apart, but what you see in this story is a desire, that natural human tendency of show me the rules that I can obey, that I can control, and then I'm in. It's a way to earn merit, a way to earn favor with God. Now, it is doubtful, and this is where you would pick this apart, that he could ever fulfill all of these commandments perfectly like he thinks he has, but that also shows the natural human condition. We think we do better than we do. But what is important in this, the reason I read it, is Jesus knows what he loves more than God. He loves something more than God, and that something motivates his life, not pleasing God. And we have to remember in this that God demands nothing less than every aspect of our being be devoted to him. So he hits him where it hurts. He focuses on wealth, and that's where most people want to spend all their time talking on this. But this can be anything. This can be relationships. This can be reputation. This can be our parents. This can be our children. But in all things, God must come first. To please Him, to act to please Him, He cannot take second place ever behind anything or anyone. And pleasing God was not how this young man's life could be characterized despite all of his attempts at external obedience. And you see this in his departure. Because when he was presented with a trade-off between following Christ between being aligned with God and his current lifestyle, God took second place. And he left sorrowful. And unfortunately, we see that every day in the Christian community. We see it every Lord's Day in church. And sadly, the way the church typically responds to this is to talk to people and make excuses for them and encourage them in their primary allegiances, whatever those are that take them away. So long as they give some part of themselves, or some lip service, or some little amount of time to God as a second or third or fourth priority. That's good enough. We want to encourage them in that. We have a problem with that. Everybody does. When we cherish our sins, when we love our sins, when that includes idols, right? That includes 
the people or the things or the opportunities that we place above God, that we place above worshiping God, then our confidence in prayer, our grasping at the promises of God are all in vain. Psalm 66, 18 tells us that if we love or cherish or value or hold on to our sins, that the Lord does not hear our prayers. And that's not a verse that people love. That's not one that we print on coffee mugs and t-shirts. Right? Nobody has that one hanging in their office wall. But it's there. And most people would kind of chalk that up as it applies to someone else. It doesn't apply to me. Because I'm much better than that. And that is our age-old problem of wanting to grade on the curve. There's always a Hitler or a Stalin or a Pol Pot or a Mao that we can point to that's way worse than us. And so, well, we sure should count ourselves as lucky and we're in. But that's not God's standard. God's standard is to hold us to His perfect righteousness, and there is only one man who has met that standard, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ. So all of our faith has to be in Him. The emphasis of this entire verse is that our obedience has to result from our complete submission to Jesus Christ as Lord, our desire to please Him. The because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him clause is meant to be descriptive. That's the important part for you to grasp. This is not a prescriptive. It's not telling us what to do. This, in this case, is meant to be descriptive of the disciple, of the person who has given his or her life totally to serving and pleasing the Lord in everything. Say that again. It is meant to be descriptive of the true disciple of Jesus Christ who has given themselves to serving and pleasing the Lord. And this is really what it means to abide or to remain in Christ, in Christ in us. Something that we've talked about as we've gone through 1 John. It's not a lottery ticket once we become saved, once we give our lives to Him. It's not meant to satisfy every desire that we had before we were saved. We wanted this then and we want it now, but now we have Jesus, so we'll use His name and get what we want. That isn't the way that that works. What is the decision we make? The decision we make is to take up our cross and follow Him. To follow the one who satisfied all the requirements for righteousness by his perfect life that we can't do. And to the one who satisfied the justice of a holy God by going and paying the penalty for our sin on that cross. And ultimately we have to recognize that salvation is not for our glory. It is a great sign of love by God for us. But it is for his glory and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is why we're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that includes our prayers and our requests and our petitions. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15. John 15, 7-10 and verse 16. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, great if we stop there. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You see in those promises that Jesus is making 
that in all things glory belongs to God, not to us. The promise is to meet our every request when our every request reflects the fact that we live to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Right? That is a request that we make while we stand on the very truth of God's word and show that we are absolutely committed to Him and His word in every aspect of life. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this verse wrote, What it means is this, if I am keeping his commandments, if I am really doing his will, if I love God and my neighbor as myself, if I really am living the Christian life in that way, then I can be certain that my life is a life which is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I know that any petitions and desires I may have have been created within me by the Holy Spirit. And because my petitions and my desires are produced by the Holy Spirit, I can be certain that they will be answered. That is a great promise. It is a great summation of what those mean. But how do we get there? How do we become filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we make that walk? Well, it's quite simple. By repenting of sin. By turning away from it. And believing in and trusting and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. By basing your entire hope on the fact that He came, that He lived a perfect life, that He died for your sins, that He rose three days later, that He ascended into heaven, that He sits at the Father's right hand interceding for us, and that He will return one day in power and glory. And when you have done that, every believer, every believer who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in prayer, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts, that drives us. Romans 8, 26 and 27 says this, Likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a wonderful thing. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, it certainly happened to me when you're praying and you just can't think of what to pray for. You pray, but you do have this confidence that the Holy Spirit who indwells us intercedes for us. That is a wonderful promise. Now, back to our passage, John does provide some clarification on what the commandments are, but it doesn't narrow anything down, not at all. He says in 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Now you'll note from that that there's only one commandment. That is a singular. Here is the commandment, and then He's got two prongs that come off of this, which is about as broad a summary as the, as the entire Bible as you can get. The first prong is to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Why is that broad? Well, because what's the entire letter of 1 John written for? to tell you whether or not you believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And so then it encompasses everything that's in the letter of 1 John. Everything from obedience to faith to the command to love 
and we'll keep going from there. On top of that, if you turn back to the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, it says, It was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So the substance of the belief in the name of Jesus Christ encompasses all of the Gospels and everything that is said there. And if it encompasses all of the Gospels and all of Jesus' teaching and His life, it points back to the entire Old Testament, and now you have the entire Bible. When John writes, believe in the name, you have to remember that that is shorthand at that time. What it means to believe in the name means that you believe everything about Him. You believe in His very nature, His power, His authority, His attributes, what He has done and what He will do. And John lays this out. It first includes knowing that He is the eternal Son of God. That He's the eternal Son of God. He's not created, but He's eternally begotten as the second member of the Godhead. Right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. But that's not all. That was the first one. John actually writes this in a way that he includes three things that are inclusive in this broad category. It is the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Talked about the Son. The second is it calls you to believe on the historical fact that the eternal Son of God took on a human nature. When he was conceived of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then he lived as a man named Jesus. And he lived perfectly in obedience to God's will. And thirdly, you must believe that the Son, who took on a human nature and lived as Jesus, is the Christ. Christ is a title. It is not a name like we use it all the time. It is a title. It is saying He is God's anointed. He is the Messiah. He is the only hope for humanity. He is the one who will save His people. Right? Matthew one twenty one. He will save His people and He fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecy that points to Him. This is ultimately a command to trust in the work accomplished on the cross, to believe in the substitutionary atonement for sins, to know that Christ died in your place if you believe in Him, and that for all eternity you will be cloaked in His righteousness from His perfect life when God looks to you. Ultimately, to believe is to be obeying God, to be doing the work that He has allotted us to do. In John 6, Jesus answers a crowd that's following Him this way. They Say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Again, you see this constant pattern of human beings, right? What can we do so that we know that we're ticking the right boxes? Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The work of God that you must do is to believe in His Son. And to believe in Him is to believe in everything He stood for, everything He taught, and that is all of Scripture, every word. Every punctuation mark, listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is saying Old Testament. That's how you say Old Testament in summary fashion. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so it's everything. Well, how did Jesus summarize these then for us? What can we know that they, they are? Well, he does that for us and we know that. Mark 12, 29 and 31. Jesus said the most important of these 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, and that captures virtually everything. So to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, is to submit to God, knowing that your only salvation comes from Him. You can't do it. That your internal destiny is based on whether or not, by God's grace, you have been saved by faith in Christ alone. Now, R.C. Candlish, he wrote this, Unbelief, unbelief, is and must be especially displeasing to God. It is God's pleasure that His Son should be known, trusted, worshipped, loved, honored as He Himself would be honored. You cannot displease the Father more than by dishonoring His Son. Refusing to receive Him and rest upon Him and embrace Him and hold Him fast and place full reliance upon Him as Redeemer, brother, and friend. That is the work of God, to believe in the Son. Our passion for God's Word, our love for Christ, our desire to obey, all of these things point to the fact that we belong to Him. Now the second prong of the commandment, there were two, remember, believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and... Love one another just as He has commanded us. Now, we've covered that at length last week, but to love, in this case, is not translated from a word that would convey any sense of emotional love. It conveys a willful, active, sacrificial choice. A willful, active, sacrificial choice, and the form of the verb used here is continuous. You cannot do it once in the past and say, I I have obeyed this. It is a requirement to love repeatedly, habitually, continuously. What comes to my mind when I think about this and when I think about some of the conversations I have is Peter standing in front of Jesus and saying, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? I mean, this slouch, this this guy who keeps taking advantage of me, how many times do I have to put up with it? I'm done. I'm done. Am I good with you? I'm done. Seven times. A lot of times. And Jesus responds and says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven which means forever. And we should be thankful that that's Jesus' teaching to love as He loved because which one of us could go to God and say, wait a second, I, I, I didn't know that was the last time I could sin before you said you were done with me and walk away. No, we don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them to Him and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 we should be thankful for that. So what's the extended the commandment to love just as He has commanded us? John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Do you see that the love of God, the love of Christ, His actions on our behalf are not dependent on our merit? Not dependent at all on whether He likes us or not, right? We don't do anything to merit that at all. It is purely sacrificial. It is a decision on the part of the one loving, not the part of the one being loved. And this is something we must apply. It is sad, but you see this distinction even within the church of people clouding this with whether we like something or someone that has happened. 
What does this love require us to do? It requires us to know and understand our brothers and sisters in Christ, to truly know what their needs are. But that means we have to be willing to have hard discussions. We have to be willing to speak biblical truth into the lives of one another. That is how iron sharpens iron. We have to be willing to do that in hopes that God will change their heart, not us. That's not what He calls us to do. He doesn't call us to change people. He calls us to love them. God does the changing. We're called to love. And of course, John had made it clear, and we covered these verses last week, that it does require the sacrifice of our resources, our time, whatever that might be, to meet those needs. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 made that clear. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul summarizes this whole thing, really, by saying that the only thing that matters, there's no other distinction, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's it. It counts for everything, he says. So let's come full circle and close. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Sounds a little different when you read it in reverse like that. But that's where we started. And we have to recognize this is not a promise of health, wealth, leisure, all of these things that we want. It is a wonderful promise, though, that if our lives are submitted fully to the will of God, He continues to change us such that our wants align with His will. And we live in that joy of being His, His children. And that New Testament promise is made over and over and over again, and we don't want to lose sight of how wonderful that is. But what you need, what God will provide, may not be what you want right now. There are some people who allow that to shatter their faith. And if that shatters your faith, that you're not getting what you want right now because you think you deserve it from God, you need to take a giant step back because you're probably believing in the wrong God, the wrong Jesus. Who do we follow? We follow a Savior who went to the cross. We follow a Savior who told His would-be disciples, count the cost. Don't make this decision foolishly. Count the cost of what it will take to follow me with all of your heart. You'll have joy in your pursuit of life as a Christian. But you better count the cost if you're valuing what the world loves. He didn't promise wealth, did he? What did he promise those who asked him? He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 9, 58. You're not going to get rich. You who want to drop everything and follow me, You're not heading to a mansion. You're heading to a cross. Because we follow him by what? Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my follower, let him deny himself. The first part. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Join the death march. But we're going to eternity. What a wonderful thing. Those who do this, they have a wonderful, joyful, secure life in Christ. Though it may not be that way when measured by the world's standards. But we draw ever nearer to Him. Really, I'm closing with this. We'll read a poem. The author of this poem is unknown, but it kind of captures the very heart of this. It says, I asked for strength that I might, be, that I might achieve. He made me weak 
that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. He gave me grace that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. He gave me poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. He gave me weakness that I might feel a need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. He gave me life so that I could enjoy all things. I received nothing that I asked for. He gave me all that I had hoped for. That is true for every one of us if your hope is placed solely in Christ. If you look forward to an eternity, not just to tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. All of it. Lord, if we were so deprived as to only have one verse, think how how troubling it would be, how quickly we would be led astray. So by your grace, you have given us your word in poems, in history, gospels, teaching, such that, Lord, we can look at this and truly understand as we seek to know you, because it is in knowing you that our love grows ever deeper. Lord, we pray that our hearts will be transformed, that you will continue to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of your Son, and we are willing to bear whatever pain that might take as we strip away those things that are not pleasing to you and focus on pleasing you. Lord, we pray that that would be evident to those all around us, that they would see in us something different and something beautiful, something that no doubt we know will convict them. God, we hope that as they are convicted of their own sin, that indeed they will turn and see our example and ask what it is and who it is that we have as our hope. Lord, as we go out into the world this week, let us be your shining lights. Let us be your beacon of truth. Give us boldness to speak your word. Give us boldness to love one another. Give us strength to do that, to overcome our own fears, our own anxieties, our own anger, our own irritations. Lord, you know that we are weak, and yet you promise that it is in our weakness that you are shown strong. We know that we don't come with strength and power, but we come as small people, resting fully in a powerful God. God, we thank you for this time you've given us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.